Let's pray together and ask God's help. Our Father, we thank you for this moment of history, and we thank you for your word that was recorded for us by your Spirit through your people so that we could receive this this morning with confidence that you're hearing your very voice. And so we pray that as we consider this, you would inform our minds to think rightly about this, to believe what is true. We pray that you'd transform our hearts, motives, and affections, and our will so that we would respond rightly to this sight of glory and that we would live in a way that's transformed from the sight of the glory of Jesus. So really what we're asking here, Lord, is for you to do what only you can do, that you would open our eyes to help us this morning behold your glory in Christ and be transformed to become like him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we refer to this story as the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus was transformed before his disciples to show his glory. And so here's the question uh, that I want us to ask this morning about this. Why did this happen? This isn't just a random occurrence. Uh, One thing that struck me as we've gone slowly through the Gospel of Mark these months is just how intentional and careful and strategic Jesus was about everything he did and said. The way he healed people, the, the way he adapted the miracle to suit the particular needs of this particular person in front of him, the timing of what he did, where he went, staging things and setting things up to be able to give lessons to his disciples and the crowds. And the transfiguration is the same. It serves a very unique purpose. It wasn't just, it wasn't just that, um, you know, Jesus had a plan. At some point, I got to get transfigured. Should I do that early on? Should I do it later? You know, and just, okay, now's a good time. This happened strategically. And so when we see this, we actually will see just how relevant this is for us in our everyday lives. So this story exists to answer a question. I'm convinced. What will give us hope when following Jesus is hard? That's the question. What will give you hope when for various reasons at various times in your life following Jesus will be particularly costly and hard for you. What's going to give us the hope we need to keep going? This is the question that we need answered. If you were here last week, we saw that Jesus got really clear about what it means to follow him. He said that he is the Christ, but that he's also going to the cross. So he is bringing his kingdom, but it will happen through the pathway of suffering and crucifixion. And then he said... If you want to follow me, here's what needs to be true of you. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, self-renunciation, take up his cross, so this path of costly love and social shame, and follow me. So following Jesus is hard. So what do we need in order to not give up? What do we need to be sure that this is the right path, that Jesus really is the true king of the world. What, in other words, how do we find hope when following him's heart? We just celebrated baptisms this morning, which was amazing. And we're remembering the launch of the Christian life, what it means to begin following Jesus. As we celebrate baptisms, we are also acknowledging that the life that's laid before these young men and women will be marked with cost. 
It's self-renunciation. It's embracing a cross, which was this symbol of social shame, um, and following Jesus. So, what do we need? Well, this transfiguration is the answer. So, Jesus just told his disciples that following him is going to be really hard, and then he gave them this glimpse of his glory. This glimpse of glory exists to give hope when life is hard. So, here's how I picture it. I know many of us are not thrilled about the cold and dreary days the past few days. I mean, I've pulled my car out of the garage. All the kids' stuff can fill the garage now because I don't have to scrape my windshield anymore, right? And then this morning, I get in the car and it's covered with a sheet of ice, right? And the past few days have been just gray skies. They've been cold. If you like warm weather, they've been a little depressing in that sense. And so, but do you remember a few days ago that warm, beautiful, sunny day? A glimpse of glory. That day gives hope that greater days are coming. So in our culture, it feels like we're headed toward colder days of winter. And we can feel like we're entering a season of gray and gloomy skies for Christians. And it may be a long winter, and there may be increased costliness for following Jesus. And what do we need in that long winter? Well, we need a glimpse of the blazing glory of Jesus. And a glimpse of the blazing glory of Jesus, we can hold on to that in the midst of the hard gray skies and cold days of winter, because we know that that glimpse means that glory's coming. We know that behind the gray skies is a blazing sun, and it will break through and shine again and scatter the cold and gray skies. So behind the clouds of pain and costliness is the blazing glory of Jesus shining. And we've gotten a glimpse here in the transfiguration, which points forward to the glimpse that Jesus gave in the resurrection, which points forward to his future coming Again, so this gives hope for when following Jesus is hard. So we see three movements in this story. We see the radiance, we hear the voice, and we learn of a surprise. So let's consider each of these three as we walk through. So first, the radiance. Mark tells us what happened here in verses 2 and 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. So this is just for this closest inner circle of Jesus, right? So you have crowds of people, and then you have closer disciples that follow him. Then you have the 12, and then within the 12, you have this three, Peter, James, and John. We also learn elsewhere that John may have been the closest disciple in some ways. Peter is the leader of the disciples in another way. So he brings these three together, and then he's transfigured before them. Verse 3, Mark says, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Uh, Matthew adds that his face is even shining in glorious, radiant brightness here. And then Mark says, a cloud overshadowed them and a voice spoke from heaven. This is an utterly singular moment in human history. And yet, it's familiar Something like this has happened before. Imagine going up to a Jewish person in the first century before this happened, and you said to them, or actually, how about this? You go up to a Jewish person after this story but hasn't yet heard of this story, and you say, hey, I have a story to tell you. I heard about something amazing. 
and, you, and they say, sure, tell me the story. And you say, well, God, God's a leader is leading His people on a journey, and they came to a mountain. And then that leader went up the mountain. He, he took just a few people with him, and then he alone went to the top of the mountain. And then there was glory shining up there, and a cloud overshadowed him. And then there was a voice from heaven speaking. They would say, I know exactly what you're talking about. And they'd open up to Exodus 24 and say, let me guess, Moses was there. And you say, yeah, yeah, Moses was there. Um, right? Do you see the connection? So Exodus 24, this happened with Moses. The people of Israel brought to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up, overshadowed with a cloud, radiant glory. God speaks to him. It also just so happens that Mark adds this note that this happened after six days, and Mark usually doesn't give those kinds of notes of time. He's usually immediately, immediately, immediately. Well, you go to Exodus 24, and Moses is up there for six days, and on the seventh, the cloud overshadows him, and God speaks. And then there's also, at the bottom of the mountain, a dispute happening. Moses even says, hey, if there's a dispute, um, you know, go to these guys, they'll sort it out. And when Jesus comes down the mountain, we find out there's some quarreling going on. So this whole scene, Mark is intentionally trying to evoke this memory from Exodus because that's uh, a key to its significance. So it's the same story, but with one difference and one difference at the heart of it. Moses went up the mountain and he saw the radiance of God's glory. Jesus goes up the mountain and is the radiance of God's glory. This is the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus. Jesus is transfigured before his disciples and Moses here, right? Moses and Elijah are there, amazingly, and he himself becomes radiant with splendor. Hebrews 1, we read it earlier, says this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God with us. And here he is the display of God's glory. On every page of Mark's gospel, Jesus is shown to be truly God and truly man. We've seen over and over that Mark doesn't come out and just explicitly say Jesus is God, which is what John tends to do in his gospel account, uh, but in every, everywhere he shows that Jesus is God. And so if you were to just read through the Old Testament, story after story after story, and just collect all these things that God does. Who is He? What does He do? What is He like? What alone can He do? And then you turn the page and start reading the Gospel of Mark. You'd see Jesus, and you'd say, this guy's doing all the things that God alone can do. Stilling storms, forgiving sins, feeding thousands, and now radiant, transcendent glory at the top of a mountain, evoking that one singular moment when God did that for Moses. And so God is with us, and he's here on this mountain. And then, you know, who shows up? Elijah and Moses appear. They were the great prophets of the Old Testament. Uh, interestingly, both of them had experiences on Mount Sinai of seeking God, and now here they are on a mountain with God revealing his glory through Jesus. So how did the disciples respond? Well, they're terrified. Look at verses 5 and 6. Peter says, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. So he gets to good thing, seems obvious. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. So what's Peter thinking here? Well, why is he scared? Why does he recommend that they build tents? 
Well, we don't know for sure. In one sense, he just didn't know what to say. But it seems like there are a couple reasons why this was his instinct in this moment. First of all, Peter, we don't get any sense that he would know that this is going to be a brief moment, right? He's just confessed Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited king. The kingdom is dawning in Jesus. He's heard Jesus say that it's going to involve suffering, death, and resurrection, but he doesn't get that. He even rebuked Jesus at the thought of it. And so it would be reasonable to expect Peter to think, it's going down now, right? This, it's happening. We got Moses and Elijah showing up. Jesus is radiant with glory. It's time. The kingdom is coming in its fullness and great power here. He's going to be enthroned. Here's a second reason why he's scared and wants to set up tents. Well, how can you behold God's glory like this as a sinner and live? God's glory is dangerous. When Moses was on Mount Sinai and God spoke to him from the cloud, you know what God spoke to Moses about? About building a tabernacle to contain God's glorious presence so that he wouldn't consume the people because they were sinners. And so this tent in this language here is tabernacle. Peter's like, we've got to set up some tabernacles here to contain the glory of God so that we aren't consumed, right? Being terrified of judgment. That would be a reasonable response. We don't know exactly what's in his head. That would be reasonable. But mainly, he doesn't know what to say. So the disciples are in awe and terror of the sight, and then the focus shifts from what they see to what they hear. So second, the voice. Verse 7 is the heart of the story. A cloud overshadows them, just like on Mount Sinai, and then they hear a voice out of the cloud. We can assume this is God the Father, and he makes two statements. Do you see them? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Both of those statements tell us something important about Jesus. First, the Father says, this is my beloved son. When we hear that, we may first think this refers to Jesus as the second person of the Trinity. So we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Christians uh, believe from the Bible that um, God eternally exists as three persons. There's one God eternally existing as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's true, and that's certainly part of what we're to understand here. But there's more to it than this as well, because this is a, essentially a quotation from the Old Testament from Psalm 2. The Old Testament gave promises, and God here in both statements is quoting those to identify Jesus as the fulfillment of those promises. So to call Jesus his son is to identify him as the true king of Israel and the world from David's line. So God had promised David that one of his descendants would come and be the king of an eternal kingdom. And he promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that he, God would be a father to this king, and the king would be a son to God as father. And then in Psalm 2, which we assume is written by David as this prophetic expectation of this one true king that's going to come, David um, refers to that great promise, and this psalm celebrates this enthronement of this eternal king who comes. And listen to Psalm 2-7. This coming king, David says, will say this, I will tell of the decree... The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. So for centuries, God's people have been waiting for this king to come who will say, the Lord told me this decree, you are my son, you're the king. He'd be the Christ, the Messiah, the king, the son of God from David's line. And so now God speaks from heaven to this inner circle of disciples to confirm Jesus' identity as the true king. So, Jesus, just before this, asked, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ. 
And now the father says, you're right. This is my beloved son. He's the king. And Mark doesn't want us to miss this. In fact, um, the very first verse of the opening of the gospel of Mark, he's introducing it. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And then Mark structures the whole story of Jesus around three key moments where Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. The first is at his baptism. The sky is ripped open, and a voice from heaven speaks and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well well pleased. The middle moment is right here at the transfiguration. The voice speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son. And then the last moment, so we have the beginning of the gospel, the middle of the gospel, the end. It's at the cross. This time it's not the Father speaking from heaven. Amazingly, it's from a Gentile soldier beholding the way Jesus dies. And he declares, truly, this is the Son of God. Because it's not just at the transfiguration where radiant glory is seen. It's at the cross in the way Jesus dies for his people. We'll come back to that in a moment. So those are the high points, the baptism, transfiguration, and the cross. The Father also makes a second statement about Jesus in verse 7. He says, listen to him. It's actually another quotation from the Old Testament. Moses, who's standing right there with Elijah, Jesus, and the disciples, wouldn't have missed it because, it's interesting, the Father is quoting Moses here in an incredible promise that God gave through Moses from Deuteronomy 18. So Moses was about to die, and he said, even though I'm about to die, one day God will raise up another prophet like me. Here's what he said in Deuteronomy 18.15. He said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. You shall listen to him. And that became an important promise for God's people. And so Jesus is the true and final prophet. So here's the question. What were they to listen to him about? If he's the king, he's the prophet, everything's pointing to him, got it. The father's confirming this. Um, It's not merely saying, hey, this is who he is, the king and the prophet. There is a command there. Listen to him. What are they to listen to him about? Well, what did Jesus just tell them about? This is the turning point of Jesus' ministry and the gospel of Mark. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus confirmed that he is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's the King, but then he surprised his disciples and blew their categories. If you were here last Sunday, we looked at this in, in detail because he said that he was going to suffer and die and rise, and they were not expecting that. Peter even takes him aside and makes sure he's thinking straight, um, rebukes him, and then Jesus says, to follow me involves the same thing. Take up your cross. It's self-renunciation. Take up your cross, embrace social shame for following a crucified Messiah that the world mocks and thinks is ludicrous. That's the message. They were not expecting that. And we don't get any implication or any sense that they kind of, once he said it, they're like, okay, sounds good. They still don't get it. They're not going to get it for a while. It'll take the resurrection and outpouring of the Holy Spirit for them to get it. So he just blew their categories And then Jesus is the one then who they're not expecting him to be. They want him to to be a king who makes following him easy. And Jesus is saying it's going to be hard. And so Jesus clarifies that his way is the way of the cross. No one expected that. No one wanted that. So do you see then the purpose of the transfiguration moment on the heels of that kind of news? 
Do you see its strategic timing? They don't want a suffering king. They don't want a hard Christian life. And once Jesus begins heading to the cross, which he's going to do with laser focus now, he's headed to Jerusalem, they're going to be tempted to leave him. They're going to be tempted to think he's not the Messiah. They're going to be tempted to want a different kind of life. And in the future, they're going to be tempted to want a different kind of life. And Jesus says, wait, come up the mountain. I want to show you something. Let me show you my glory and my power. Let the Father from heaven confirm for you of who I am and my identity. And so when things get hard and you feel disillusioned by me, you can hold on to this hope. This is a glimpse of glory for when things get hard. Peter never forgot it. He actually brought this moment up when he was writing a letter to Christians later in his life. It's uh, the letter of 2 Peter, and here's what he says in 2 Peter 1. He says, we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. By the way, he's, he's making it clear, this is not a myth, this isn't a legend, this isn't just a creative, interesting story. This is the genre of history. Um, this is a historical narrative, and he's saying, I was an eyewitness. And it wasn't just me, there's others. And then he says this, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, for when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. So you see what Peter's saying? He's just recalling this later in life even saying, we're not making stuff up. Um, I'm holding on to this hope. I was an eyewitness of his glory. And so we need to embrace this as well. You know, we're all listening to someone's voice, right? In our culture, we're drawn to listen to friends or a cultural hero or some celebrity. I mean, many people in our culture are obsessing after the voice of a particular celebrity or political pundit. And all of these voices are shaping our instincts. They're influencing our vision of what we think the good life is. And those voices are telling us also to listen to our own hearts. Our individualistic culture says, listen to your heart and follow it. And these voices are often calling us to lead us away from the voice of Jesus or to have instincts and ethics that when they get rooted into our heart, we then look at what Jesus in the New Testament calls us to do and we say, that can't be. That's not plausible. That won't work in our culture. I don't like it. That doesn't fit with my instinct of what it means to love. But here the voice from heaven says, this right here is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so the question we have to ask of any other voice we're listening to for authority, whether it's our own or someone else, is has that person ever taken you up on a mountain and displayed the glory of God shining through him? Because if not, listen to Jesus. He wins every time. So that's the message. Not follow your heart, follow Jesus. That's the message. And then immediately, it's over. Verse 8 says, suddenly everything was over, and Jesus standing there was just a glimpse. It was a foretaste of the resurrection power, the ascension of Jesus, the glory he has now, and the return of Jesus in the future. But it was a glimpse in history for that moment. And then as they came down the moment, or the mountain, we see the third moment, which is the surprise which will keep surprising them because it's really the same message that keeps surprising them, which is 
the message of his suffering. So all through the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is telling people to be quiet. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what I did for you. Don't tell anyone what you saw. And now it's the first time where he puts a time limit on it. He says, don't tell anyone till the resurrection. So we see he has a strategy here, right? He's saying, people will not understand me. So let's just be quiet. Let me do my ministry. Let me teach. Let me heal. And then in the resur- when the resurrection happens, then you'll make everything known. But for now, uh, keep quiet. So they're confused. They hear him talk about the resurrection again in that moment, and they're like, what does he mean by this? So in verses 11 to 13, they try to get some clarity from him about what they're to expect. I mean, they just saw this radiant glory. They saw Moses and Elijah. He's talking about a resurrection. So they're thinking, okay, kingdom coming, culmination of history. Elijah's here. What, is, what should we expect? And so they ask him for clarity. We don't have time to walk through this closely, but here's the two big ideas from verses 11 to 13. First, according to the Old Testament, an Elijah figure would come again, and he would prepare the people for God to come to renew all things. The disciples are wondering when that's going to happen. If Elijah's supposed to come first, when's that going to happen? Jesus confirms that, and he basically says, John the Baptist is this Elijah figure. He did come. He came to prepare the way for the Lord to come, restore all things, and then we see John the Baptist came to prepare the way for Jesus. That's the Elijah figure preparing the way for the Lord. But second, and here's the surprise, Jesus says John was the new Elijah, and what happened to him? He was rejected, and he was killed. And so here's the point for the disciples, just as John suffered and died, so Jesus too is going to suffer and die because John points to Jesus. It's a pattern. It's another confirmation from Jesus to the disciples that he's, he has to suffer and die. The glory they saw is on the other side of a cross and through the cross. So there's this great surprise in the story of the transfiguration. Here Jesus is in radiant glory and beauty, declared to be God's son and this great prophet to come, the true king. And yet the whole point of this moment is to confirm for the disciples that what he said about the cross, about his death, is true. So this moment of glory is connected to the cross. And Mark wants us to see that it's not just this transfiguration on the mountain where we see Jesus' glory. It's actually at the cross where we see his glory as well. So here's what I mean. Think about the differences here. Here around Jesus is radiant light and glory. And at the cross, it will go supernaturally dark all around him. Here his clothes are radiant white. At the cross, his his clothes will be torn off. Here, he hears the Father's affirmation of him. At the cross, heaven will be silent, and he'll cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here, he has two prophets testifying to his identity with him. At the cross, he'll have two criminals at his sides. And here, Peter stays and says, it's good to be here. At the cross, Peter denies Jesus and leaves and runs away from him. But for all the contrasts, there's a deep unity that we're to see here. In both places, Jesus is proclaimed to be the Son of God. Here the Father declares it. There at the cross, a Gentile soldier will declare it. But his testimony is true. And he sees a glimpse of glory because it says, as he saw the way Jesus died, 
he was convinced, truly, this is the Son of God. So it said at the cross, the singular location of shame in that culture becomes the singular location of glory shining in the world when coupled with the resurrection to come. And so he's showing us that there's costly love at the cross, and that costly love is the blazing radiance of the heart of God for sinners, which is why it's a display of His glory, because God's glory is seen not just in shining radiant light and power that makes universes and names the stars, but His glory is seen in setting His heart of affection on you. And before you were even born, choosing you and deciding to take all your sins and put them on the Lord Jesus. And Jesus does it willingly out of costly, deep love to secure for you forgiveness of sins in an eternity of knowing Him and beholding His glory. That's why the cross itself, the moment of shame in that culture, is the moment of glory in history. And that's what changed the world, changed Western culture. That's why a cross is hanging behind us because that's where glory is found. And this moment is a glimpse of glory that gives us hope and hardship. So, as we wrap up in the next couple minutes, a couple implications to consider and draw from here. This means that we do have hope and hardship, and it also means that we are to listen to Jesus in all things. So, we have hope and hardship. So, Jesus gave them this experience on the heels of potential disillusionment with Him and what it means to follow Him we all will face the temptation of being disillusioned by Jesus, especially when it gets hard, especially when it's hard in a culture like ours, where we'll think, do I really want to follow him? Is it worth it? Am I really going to maybe need to lose my job to hold fast to him in light of this? Do I love that that neighbor there just hates me even though I've really, I've just been nothing but kind to that person, but just because I'm a Christian? Is it worth it? Um, we need to know that. And Jesus, right at this turning point moment for his disciples, confirms his identity, gives them a glimpse of glory, lets them be eyewitnesses. And he did it for those three, but it was a foretaste of the resurrection, which he did for more than three. Right? He appeared to many people, 500 at one time, because the resurrection, the fact that it happened in history matters. For eyewitness testimony, it matters because you and I need to know he really is the king. He really did rise from the dead, which means no matter how hard it gets, I have hope because I've gotten a glimpse of his glory. He is who he said he is. And so that gives us hope today. So we need to know that our suffering will lead to glory. It won't be the end. His transfiguration and resurrection confirm his identity. We'll be tempted to leave him, but this gives us hope to hold fast. And so we remember his transfiguration. We remember his resurrection and we hold on in hope. Second, this means that we listen to Him in everything. This means that we listen to Him even if we don't like what He says at first, even if it runs against our deepest impulses and desires. So is there something that Jesus says? I mean, think about it right now. Can you pick something Jesus says or something that the apostle said in accord with His teaching in the New Testament that you don't like? <laughs> right? That you have, or maybe put it this way, you acknowledge deeply you must like it, but it's really hard for you, especially in this culture or personally. 
Is there something the Bible teaches you don't think will work anymore in our culture? And you're watching people kind of reinterpret what Jesus says or the New Testament says, change Jesus' teaching, say, well, he didn't really mean that. Um, this is, we've kind of missed it for 2,000 years. He's actually okay with this kind of thing. I mean, what, are there thi- this going on, right? So are there things you're tempted to do? And so when we find things too hard, here's what this text means for you. If you don't like his teaching on something, it's actually not the main issue you need to settle. The main issue you need to settle is, is he God's beloved son or not? Did he rise from the dead or not? Because if he did, then the three words that matter most are, listen to him. It may take a long time to think through why what he says actually is wisdom. It may not seem wise to you. It may seem really hard to you. But at least it's settled for you that I'm the one messed up then, right? If I don't, if I don't get that and have a hard time because he's the king. He made me. He rose from the dead. I listen to him. I follow him even when it's hard. We don't get to pick and choose. We don't give up when it's hard. We embrace what he says. We listen to him. So where do, you, where do we hear his voice then? Because that's what matters, right? Where do we hear his voice? Well, we hear it in Scripture. I mentioned Peter referred to the transfiguration later in life, writing to um, these other Christians. Here's what he added. So he said, we've seen his majestic glory. We are eyewitnesses of this. We heard that he's declared to be beloved son. And then he adds this in 2 Peter 1, 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well. Those who didn't see his glory, and speaking to us now then, centuries later as well, to which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. In other words, it's dark. I've seen a glimpse of glory, but we have something more surely confirmed, which is the prophetic word, which God has written through the Holy Spirit, moving people to write down exactly what he wanted written in the Holy Bible, We have this, and it itself is a light shining until that great day dawns and the blazing glory of Jesus shines through. So hold fast, listen to him. You have a Bible, read it. That's what he's saying. And as we read God's word, we'll we'll end with this, what really we opened the service with. Um, As we read his word, we actually don't just read about glimpses of his glory. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we can actually glimpse his glory. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. To be a Christian is to have, in the language he used, the eyes of your heart opened to behold the glory of Christ. He said this, we all with unveiled face, no tabernacle between us, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So we're beholding the glory of the Lord. And then he goes on to say this, even if our gospel is veiled, you can't see, It's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. So there's the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ in the gospel message. And it's veiled to people who don't trust him. The God of this world, Satan, is blinding them to see it. But, he says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So we're proclaiming Christ because God who said in the beginning, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, if you're a Christian, God is shining the light of the gospel in your heart, which means you have, you have a face that's open to Jesus and you're beholding his glory as you grasp 
His grace in the gospel on the pages of Scripture. Bible reading's not boring. Can be, which is why we say, Lord, open my eyes to behold glory. We want to see Jesus so we can become like Jesus, so that we no longer yawn at him but wonder at him. We no longer think the gospel's boring but beautiful. We no longer make excuses for our sin, but we own it. We renounce it, and we receive his grace. John Owen wrote a great book in the 1600s called The Glory of Christ. I commend it to you. He put it this way, Scripture, right, the Bible, is our only blueprint of the glory of Christ. Only in Scripture and only by faith can we behold the glory of Christ while still in this life. We're waiting for a clearer sight. But in the meantime, we have the Bible. So, how do we have hope when it's hard? We need to see Jesus' glory. How do we see His glory? We listen to Him. And that gives us hope. So, let's pray. Father, thank You for giving us this moment in history where Jesus was transfigured and You confirmed His identity. We thank You for confirming His identity with power in the resurrection. We thank you for confirming your word to us and having the Spirit uh, cause it to be your very words breathed out. And we thank you for your work in our hearts to open the eyes of our hearts to behold your glory in Jesus. So we pray that as we go, the glimpse of your glory we've seen now would have a transforming effect on us to become like Jesus and that through this week, you would surprise us with glimpses 